morning. And I would like to at this time also ask those of you that are guests for the first time, if you wouldn't mind, in the back of the pew, pulling out a card that says, thank you for joining you under a word or whatever, you can do that. Suppose if there's one word, all of Christendom would agree is of utmost importance among Christians around the world, it is the word unity. Unity. One of the highest goals even the world is setting upon the new pope is unity. Just as yes, just yesterday in the Times Online representation, uh, representing the Times affiliated news organizations around the country, it ran this article entitled, Age of Pope Benedict Must Be One of Christian Unity. Another article in another newspaper entitled, New Pope Should Spread Ecumenical Unity Around the World. Unity, however, is not just the concern of those who are evaluating the new pope and the Roman future of the Roman Catholic Church and its role in the world. The World Council of Churches took the mantle of Christian unity years ago when it came into existence, and it builds itself, and I quote, as the broadest and most inclusive among many organized expressions of modern evangelical ecumenical movement. A movement whose goal is Christian unity. And how do they propose to bring about such unity? What is the pattern that they're going to follow? I quote, As an international fellowship of Christian churches built upon the foundation of encounter, dialogue, and collaboration. Although most Bible-believing evangelicals have serious reservations about working toward unity, with the Roman Catholic Church or the World Council of Churches, still we usually crave more visible unity among Bible-believing evangelicals than exist. However, even evangelical Christianity has more often than not been marked by divisions and strife and schisms and dissension, not unity. Furthermore, the Bible, believing evangelicals who are most committed to Scripture and Christian doctrine, are usually perceived as the greatest obstacle to unity. Let me repeat that. Bible-believing evangelicals who are committed to Bible teaching, Bible doctrine, are usually perceived by others in the evangelical camp as the greatest obstacles to unity. Example of what they would point to is right out in the foyer. It's a little booklet entitled, What Must I Do to Be Saved? Does it really matter how we answer that question? A compelling look at two very different ways of answering the question, free grace or lordship, written by Arch Rutherford. Many would see that as a source of divisiveness, even though it deals with the core of what we believe and our message to the world. So how are we to make sense of this very talked about subject of Christian unity? Is unity something that we can truly experience today? And what does it mean to have unity? And how is it attained? Turn with me, if you will, to the Lord's Prayer, not the one in Matthew 6 that is better regarded as the disciples' prayer, because the Lord could not have prayed it. I cannot picture our Lord saying, forgive me for my sins as I forgive those who sinned against me. But he clearly prayed the prayer recorded in John 17, in John 17. Now, as I mentioned last week, if you want to know what is most important to a Christian, Listen to them pray in private. And obviously you can't do that, and I can't do that, because when we're praying, we normally are not praying audibly for other people to hear. We may pray audibly, but we're confident there are people outside of our hearing range. 
And if there are people around, we'll pray, not audibly, but we'll be praying. So you can't always tell what a person's praying for. But if you could, if you could really listen to what I was praying for, what you were praying for, it would reveal clearly what we regard as important as Christians. This is no less true with our Lord Jesus Christ, who on this one occasion allowed his disciples the privilege of overhearing his prayer. And what he prayed for in this prayer was of the utmost importance to him. Keep in mind that he is praying this prayer on the very last day of his very last evening before his life will be taken from him, his earthly life will be taken from him as a sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. So what he said in his prayer was of consummate importance and should be seriously considered by all Christians. Now today, we've come to the final seven verses of this prayer. And I want to review them with you just so that you can get the flow of what's happening. I want to review what he prayed for and what was really a concern upon his heart. First of all, in verses 1 to 5, Jesus prayed for himself. And what he cared about most for himself was the glory he had before the world was and the glory that he would be receiving back, the same glory that he would be receiving back after his work on earth was finished. Last week, we looked at the second part of the prayer in verses 6 to 19, where Jesus prayed for his 11 disciples, and you, you could say by extension, all disciples. And what he cared about most when it came to his disciples was the content of their faith, what they know and believe about him. Secondly, keeping them from being caught up in the world. Thirdly, he cared about their sanctification, meaning their being set apart and their effectiveness as ambassadors of his to a lost world. And lastly, he cared about their reception of the word of God, that they might know the truth of God, truth that can sanctify and set them apart as his ambassadors in an effective way. And now today we come to the last seven verses, verses 20 to 26. And we hear Jesus praying specifically for us. He's praying specifically for us, for you and for me. Notice his first words on verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, that is, his eleven disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. It was their word, their witness about him, that would mark the day of Pentecost. When the church began, and which would eventually lead to the New Testament being written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I dare say that most of us came to believe in Him because we heard the Word of God being preached or shared with us in some way so that we could hear the truth and respond to it. And that New Testament is their Word. He says, I'm not praying for these alone, these 11 disciples, but I'm praying for those who will believe on me through their word. He's praying for you and me. And for all who will come to believe on him in the days to come. So with you and I in mind, or you and me in mind, what does he pray for? What does he care about? So much that on this last night of his life, he would take the time to talk to his Heavenly Father about it. Let's read the prayer, beginning in verse 20 through 26 of John chapter 17. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. 
And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be made perfect and one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they whom you've given me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known you, and that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Now again, we need to ask this question, when it comes to you and me specifically, what does our Lord Jesus Christ care about most? He cares primarily about three things, according to this passage. And there are obviously many other things he cares about. But these obviously were also very important things, or he wouldn't have prayed for them in this particular prayer, at this particular time, if they weren't absolutely important. The first one is that we all may be one. Verses 21 through 23. The second one is that we may be with him in heaven. Verse 24. The third thing is that we may behold his glory in heaven. Verse 24. And then he concludes with an observation and a declaration. Now, with this outline in mind, let's begin with the first concern our Lord Jesus Christ expresses when he begins to think about you and me. Here he is. He's praying. He's bowing down before his Father. And the first thing that he says is that I'm not praying for these alone, but for those who will also believe on me through their word. I'm praying, Father, that they all may be one. That they all may be one. The eleven, yes. But also all those who believe that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. Now let's take a look at this phrase by phrase. You may, I know this is a little more tedious today, and I ask you to bear with me and try to help me by keeping as attentively as, as you can. But I know we've got a lot of screwy ideas about this unity thing. We really do. And I think we really need to get a handle on what our Lord means by unity. And so we need to take this very carefully and phrase by phrase. And the thing he says is that they all may be one. And the word one here, in contrast to the, the parts which make up the whole, the word one clearly speaks about a unity or a oneness. It's speaking about unity or oneness. But what kind of oneness, what kind of unity does he have in mind for us? What is the pattern that he envisions? We need a model. We need something to look at and say, that's the unity that our Lord wants for us. Where is the model? An ecumenical unity? The ecumenical, the word ecumenical means of worldwide or universal acceptability. It conveys the idea of working together toward, toward a unity based on common ground and toleration. Is this the kind of pattern or model the Lord wants for us and which He envisions for His church? What's the pattern? Where's the model? Next clause, next phrase, He says, As you, Father, are in me and I am you. What kind of oneness? As... You, Father, are in me, and I am you. The model or pattern of unity the Lord is praying for is the same unity that exists between the Father and the Son. And what is that? Of course, that takes us back to our consideration of the, the great teaching of the, the Trinity in the New Testament, which we looked at in December but let me just review with you. The pattern for our unity is the unity that existed within the Godhead. In the unity of the Godhead, there are three co-equal and eternal persons, the same in substance but distinct in subsistence. 
They share a unity. What is this unity they share? First of all, they share a unity of life. Eternal life, Jesus calls it. Or God's life. They also share a unity of attributes. A unity of character. They share the very nature and essence of God. They share what makes God, God. Divinity. Then also they share a unity of values, of shared ideals, of shared thoughts, of shared feelings. Then they share a unity of wills, a unity of plans, objectives, of eternal purpose. Lastly, they share a unity of words, a unity of works. They're saying, I'm not quite following what you're saying. Listen to some scriptures that I think will throw more light on this than I can even add to here. John 3.34 For he whom God has sent, Jesus speaking about himself, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. John 10.30 I and my Father are one. John 10.32 Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? Then he goes on in verse 37, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in Him. There's your unity. That's the model. Jesus was doing the works of the Father. The Father was doing the works through Him. John 14, 9-12 Jesus said to him, to Philip, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the work, for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. That's looking forward to the very thing he's praying about at this very moment in John 17. And greater works than these will he do because I go to my Father. The whole point here is when he says that if, that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he's not saying we're the same person. But he's saying that we are so closely identified that our wills are so much alike that our works and our words are basically coming from one another that we share the same purpose, the same life, the same character, the same convictions, and so forth, the same same thoughts that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, you've seen His character, you've seen His thoughts, you've seen His works. Keep in mind, this is the model for our unity. This is where the Lord is going with us. Not only in terms of our relationship with Him and our unity with Him, but in our oneness together. Wow. Are you insinuating that what the Lord is really praying for here is that we show the same kind of unity that exists within the Godhead itself? That sounds almost blasphemous. But notice the next phrase. That they also may be one in us. He's looking for unity here in which we not only share unity together, but we share a unity with Him. It was just such a unity between Jesus and His Heavenly Father that convinced so many in His day to believe in Him while He was on this earth. Now our Lord says it's just such a unity between the believer, between you and me, and between Him and His Father, between us all, that will continue to convince people on this earth, not all people, but some people, that indeed Jesus is for real. That He's from the Father. That His salvation is for real. That He is indeed the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Notice the last phrase in verse 22 or 21, that the world may believe that you sent me. The Lord, as He indicated earlier, He said, I'm not praying for the world. 
I'm praying for my disciples. But I'm praying for them because it's through them that I intend to reach the world. Okay, I see it now. But how in the world, how could any of us, you or me, ever experience such a unity? Not only with each other, but with the Son, with God the Son and God the Father themselves. How could we experience such unity? Sharing their life, sharing their attributes, sharing their character, their grace, their mercy, their love, their truth, their righteousness, their goodness, their knowledge, their presence, their sovereign power, sharing their ideals, their values, their mind, their heart, sharing their objectives, their purpose, their words, their works. How could I even conceive of such a thing? But even as I think of such an impossibility, I hear the Lord interrupting me. As he continues in prayer. And this is what he says in verse 22. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they might be one just as we are one. This is how our Lord intends for us to share in a oneness with him, with his father, and with each other. However, it's at this point I lose it, to be quite frank. I've struggled with this all week long. And I want to move on to another passage. Because I'm not connecting with this word glory. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they might be one just as we are one. The glory which you gave me, I have given them. What in the world is he talking about? I don't get it. At least I wasn't alone as I worked through this all week long, and maybe that's part of my frustration. Every commentary I picked up, and I mean, when you're in a situation like this with verse 22, I'm looking at everything I can find in my library. I'm thinking, somebody's got an answer here somewhere, because I'm not seeing it. And every commentary I picked up seemed to have a different take on this word, glory. And inevitably, they all ended up, in my opinion, drifting off into some kind of mystical thoughts that seemed very pretty, but told me next to nothing about what my Lord was saying. One commentator was honest and bemoaned the fact of the same thing as he was reviewing what other commentators had said as they approached this verse. And this is what he writes. The major problem in this this verse is what Jesus meant by the word glory. Kent suggests that Jesus is referring to the glory that believers share with Christ in heaven. Westcott interprets glory to refer to the full apprehension of God's purposes in Christ, which results in the believer's transformation and unity. Plummer takes his cue from verse 24 and interprets this glory to refer to the glory of the ascended and glorified Christ. Morris suggests that Jesus is referring to the glory of the path of humble service. He comments, just as the true glory was to follow the path of lowly service, culminating in the cross, so for them the true glory lay in the path of lowly service, whether, wherever it might lead them. I'm lost, friends, just like you get with me sometimes. I know. I feel for you when you have to listen to me sometimes ramble around. But I mean, I was frustrated. Even my good buddy, Earl Rodmacher, who's going to be speaking here next month, and I intend to ask him about this first, but don't you bring it up now. I don't want to get in trouble. I didn't think that I told about him, but I'll tell him myself. I'll say I said something to you. But in any case, he says... He wrote an excellent commentary on this book, uh, on John 13 to 17. But at this particular point, I'm not overly uh, encouraged. He says, glory is manifestation. The manifestation of the saints is yet to come. Then he ends with Jesus' splendor and majesty. And usually, he takes around two pages to three pages to explain each phrase. This whole verse, he explained in one paragraph. It was less than about five lines. What's going on here? What is the glory Jesus is speaking of here? Now, as I move forward, you have the right to disagree because I have to confess this is arch. I don't have a lot that I can point to to back it up. 
other than Scripture. I'll try to give you a little bit more from Scripture today than I normally would to substantiate what I'm trying to say. Let's look at the distinguishing characteristics of the glory Jesus is speaking of here. First of all, one thing, it is a glory the Father gave to him. And this rules out the intrinsic glory that he had as God before he came into this earth. This is a glory that was given to him, obviously given to him while he was on this earth in his earthly life. Furthermore, it was a glory that he has given to those who will believe on him. The tense here is a past tense with abiding results, but the idea is still that he's looking forward to those who will believe on him, and from their perspective, it will be past, and the results will be abiding. Another thing is that when he speaks about giving us his glory, he is not saying he is promising to give us what is intrinsically belonging to God. But but he's giving us something the Father has given to him. He's passing it on. You might say he's passing the baton. Something that would result in his being glorified or revealed as the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the living God. Something that would engender the oneness with his Father, which he would continually experience throughout his earthly life. He's going to pass on to us that it might enable us to have the same kind of life, the same kind of unity with him and with one another. What is it? I mean, you probably already figured it out. What our Lord is speaking of here, in my opinion, in verse 22, and I know, again, I'm alone on this, at least so far. There may be some other commentators out there I haven't read that may agree here. And you can let me know that if you find any. I believe what he's speaking about here is the Holy Spirit. Who has glorified or revealed Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the living God. To a skeptical and ignorant world during his earthly life. The same Holy Spirit who was sent forth by the Father as a gift to his Son. The Son has now promised to give to his 11 disciples and to us that we might experience a unity or oneness pattern after the Godhead itself. Because if you have the Holy Spirit, God is in reality living within you. And so you're sharing in everything that is His. At this point, I know most of you would maybe tend to trust me But I think that this is a very serious, serious subject because there's a lot of confusion. And therefore, I think we need to have our ideas about Christian unity, in some cases, reworked, unwound, if you will, and then rewound according to Scripture. And what I'm proposing, I think, needs some more weight behind it. And so I've got to share with you some Scripture I know we'll make this a little more of a tedious message, but I think it will be helpful in the long run for many. Journey with me through the scriptures that I think will help establish just what I'm saying. First, let's consider the Holy Spirit's ministry in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, which resulted in his being glorified and revealed, which is what the word glorified means. It means to reveal him as the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the living God to a skeptical and ignorant world. Notice... At his very birth, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. At his baptism, we read that the Holy Spirit alighted upon him, descended upon him in bodily form. At his temptation, we read that he was led by the Spirit up into the wilderness. It says that he, after that, returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. In Galilee, he was in the synagogue and he was reading a portion of Isaiah the prophet. And the portion he read, he went on to explain and apply to himself. He said, the Spirit Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
Because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. John writes those famous words, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. The very qualities that in the Old Testament you read, if, where God revealed himself, Jehovah God revealed himself to, to Moses, as he passed by, he said, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. And then when we read that this, the Jesus who was born... And that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. We're saying that what the Spirit of God was producing in His life was the very character of God. The second thing I'd like for you to notice is that in view of His impending departure from this world, the Lord Jesus, over and over again, kept returning to the promise that He would give the Holy Spirit to His eleven disciples and to all believers that we might experience unity as measured by the unity of the Godhead and live lives that would bring glory to our Savior, revealing Him as the Savior that He is. Now, throughout the evening of the Lord's, of what the evening we associate with the Lord's Supper, Jesus kept telling His eleven disciples that He is going to send them the Holy Spirit upon them. In fact, He will be in them and because of the Holy Spirit's ministry in their lives, that they will remember the truth that He had said and all the things that He had did, and they will declare that truth and what we know as the New Testament. However, even before this evening of the Lord's Supper, when He was saying these things to His disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit, even before that, you go back into John chapter 7, and we read about Jesus at this Feast of Tabernacles, and how He stood up, and how he said, on the last day, this great day of the feast, he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers, rivers of living water. But this, John says, he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit, whom those who believe in him would receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. What kind of rivers would be flowing out of the lives of those who would believe? You and I. What is coming forth from the Spirit? What is He going to produce? Because at the, at the heart of it, it's the heart of our unity. It's sourced in the very nature and character of God. Rivers that flow out of our lives that are being lived in oneness with God, the Son of God and, the, and God the Father through the Holy Spirit. What are the tangible, the tangible things, the tangible ways, the rivers that flow forth from us change and nourish the lives of God's people. And the world around can see Jesus at work within us. I'd like to take you to a passage that's so precious, and you know it well. It's found in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. And this is what we read in Philippians 2, verse 12. verse 1 to 5. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus also. Wow. That's the rivers the Spirit of God is bringing forth in our life. Those rivers represent the very nature of God, the very character of God. And those are the very rivers that unify God's people.
And when the world looks and sees those rivers at work in our lives, they see how we're deferring to one another and putting one another first and so forth. All of a sudden, they're saying this is not natural. This isn't humanity. There's something at work here. There's a divine power. And they're brought face to face with the Savior who made it all happen. I do not think we can honestly read this passage and not... I'm talking about a Philippians 2, verses 1 to 5, and not sense that the unity or oneness described here is, has its source in the unity or oneness experienced in heaven between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's the same unity they were experiencing. And now, all of a sudden, it's being poured out in the lives of God's people. It's figuratively being poured out like a river. The outcome of such a life lived in such a way will clearly glorify, reveal Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the living God, for there's no other explanation for such a life. The third thing that I would like to call our attention to in this whole subject is that Jesus did not pray for a unity or oneness with God. He did not only pray, I should say, for a unity or oneness with God. He did pray for that, that they also may be one in us. But he began his prayers for us with these words, that they all may be one. He's not only thinking about our unity with him and our oneness with him, but he's thinking about our unity or oneness together. Our Lord Jesus was concerned about our unity. Our oneness as a local body of believers in particular. I mean, when you get down to it, friends, we can talk about ecumenical unity. We can talk about even unity in the evangelical world. But what the world sees most of the time is what's happening in a visual, local body of believers. And that's you and me. It's how we treat each other that the world's looking at. And what Jesus is envisioning here is not so much what we're doing in the, in the evangelical world or the quote, so-called Christendom. He's primarily interested in what's happening in this church, in this church family. Before rivers can change and flow forth and nourish lives, there must be a unity, a real unity or oneness among us, His people. And therefore, the Holy Spirit is always looking to break down those things that unnecessarily divide us and work toward those things that should unite us. This is crucial stuff, friends. Jesus is not praying that there should be never a division between People. He taught that he himself would be the source of division. He says, I did not come to this world, to this earth, to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Be a source of division. Wherever Jesus goes, wherever his name is mentioned, even in our own nation, just pray in Jesus' name and find out what happens. I guarantee you'll have division. People will hate you and people will love you for it. You can pray in Buddha's name, you can pray in Muhammad's name, and nobody will say a thing to you. But you pray in Jesus' name, and I'll guarantee you, you will be a divisive person. Jesus isn't talking about that kind of, of bringing unity in that kind of divisive situation. What he prayed for was unity or oneness among his own people, a unity that only the Holy Spirit could produce, a unity that we should cherish and carefully guard. The Holy Spirit's ministry toward building oneness or unity among his own people actually begins with his 11 disciples. You recall last week he said, I'm praying that for my 11 disciples that they may be one as we are one, Father. And at first I just sort of let that blow on by. I didn't think too much about it. But then as I got into it this week, I began to realize, well, those disciples after the, after the cross and after the resurrection were probably jubilant on the one hand. But there were doubters on the other, like Thomas. There, there was desertion. There was denial. There was failure on their part, some more than others. What you have here is a prescription for disunity, for hatred. Their relationship together could deteriorate very quickly, perhaps leave them divided or disillusioned. And so what does our Lord do for them? Over in chapter 20, I skipped this verse when we looked at it on Easter Sunday because I, don't, I didn't want to really deal with this verse, and I think you can see why. So Jesus said to them, verses 21 to 23 in chapter 20 of John, So Jesus said to them again, his 12 disciples, 11 disciples, Peace to you. 
As the Father has sent me, I send you also. And when he had said this, listen to this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Whoa! I thought the Holy Spirit was coming on the day of Pentecost. What is this breathing on them and giving them the Holy Spirit? Think about it. He prayed just earlier that they might experience unity. They're all in disarray and confusion. He tells them he came to bring peace. He wants them to enjoy a oneness, not only with he and his father, but with one another. What they needed was what you might call a foretaste of the Spirit's ministry that would be happening in about 50 days from that point. And so he breathed on them and gave them a foretaste of the Spirit's ministry because the Spirit's ministry is one of, of uniting, of bringing people together. And it began with his eleven. Furthermore, consider the major work of the Holy Spirit in the first ten chapters of the book of Acts. These are wild chapters. To get to chapter chapter 2, verse 30, 36, Jesus is telling these Jewish people, and he's saying, This same Jesus that you crucified, God has made him Lord and Christ. And he offered them all kinds of evidence, and they were pricked in their, co- in their heart. They were like, like a knife went through them. They clearly believed what he said. And by the way, if they believed at that moment, they had eternal life. But that was not the major issue that was staring them in the face. They realized that they were part of a generation of Jews that put him on the cross. They killed their own Messiah. And they felt this tremendous weight of guilt. And they were seeing these disciples full of the Holy Spirit, which was part of the the identification of of a kingdom that was coming. They were thinking, where are we? Are we left out? What must we do, Peter? Peter says, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you want harmony with God, forgiveness for this sin, what you need to do is repent of it and be baptized. And then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who will bring unity, who will weave you into a body that is unified. You get on over into chapter 8 and you have the story of the Samaritans. These were half-breed Jews. Half-breed Jews that were really our outcasts. Who cares about their spiritual life? Of course, Jesus did when he dealt with the, the woman at the well who was a Samaritan. But in any case, you have many of the Samaritans are believing the preaching of Philip and others. And they're responding, but they aren't receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. What has to happen? Peter has to come down. He lays his hands on them. They've already been baptized, but they haven't had Peter's hands upon them. And suddenly, they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and you know what happens? They're brought into the same body with their Jewish brethren. Now there's neither Jew nor Samaritan. Now you get down into Acts chapter 10, and you have Cornelius, the first Gentile that's going to be saved. And Peter is sent specifically to preach to him. Significant, because Peter preached to all three of these groups. God was using this very Jewish person to really realize that God's body was not going to be filled just with Jew, but with Samaritan and with Gentile. So Peter is preaching away. Without any word about repentance, no word about being baptized, it says the Holy Spirit fell upon them. They believed and the Holy Spirit fell upon them and then they were baptized. You see, the requirement that, he, that Peter had set down for the Jews to have a forgiveness and a relationship as a people with God again was different than what he asked for the Gentiles. But it was the, whole, the Holy Spirit that was working in each one of these groups through Peter. And what was he doing? His purpose was unifying the body. Jew, Gentile, and Samaritan. All in one body. The first and most important work of the Holy Spirit in bringing about unity in the body was to tear down the barriers. The Jewish barriers, the Gentile barriers, the barriers that you and I have erected in our lives against each other. I'm a bigot. There's a lot of bigotry in my life. And I know I'm looking out at a lot of bigots as well. We all are. We need to deal with that. Rich and poor. Black and white, educated, uneducated. The list goes on, ways that we divide people up, socially inept, inept, 
and socially in. You're in high school, you've got even more goodies to separate everybody out. You high schoolers know what I'm talking about. I mean, you're either in the in group or the out group. That's why we have shootings and all kinds of problems in high schools because people feel such rejection. The church isn't to be that kind of a class society. It's not to be a place where anybody feels dejected or rejected. It should be an openness to, to receive them in as they come humbly to the Savior and want to live for Him. Here you want and look at 1 Corinthians 12 where it talks about the body of Christ. Many members, one body, all the members of, have had the Holy Spirit and He unites us together in one body. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is all about. But then it goes on and says, and we've all been made to drink of the same Spirit. In other words, we're all sharing nourishment from the same Spirit that the rivers of living water might pour forth from our life. Ephesians chapter 4. Be careful to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But friends, it's not just enough to remove the artificial barriers. Unity or oneness between us is something that will not happen naturally. It is something only the Holy Spirit can make happen. be worked out. But how? How does he go about building that unity or oneness between us? 2 Corinthians 3.18 One of the most beautiful passages. I encourage you to read it on your own. It's a contrast between the, the Old Testament law and the New Testament message of grace. But Paul concludes with these words, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the mirror there is the is the Revelation that has come from the apostles about Jesus Christ, the glory of the Lord, the revelation of Him. And as we look at that revelation, that mirror that we're to be studying and examining, which reveals Christ to us, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Oh. Point by point by point, we're making progress. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There's a unity around the will of God. And the will of God is what? What He's revealed in His Word. That's His will for our life. And we should be unified around it. And when we are not in step with His will, which is revealed in His Word, then we're not unified. We constantly need to be asking ourselves, am I in step with what God has said? Not with what I feel, not with what I think, but with what God has said. Romans 8, 5 says, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. This is a mind issue here, friends. The Spirit is working through the mind. In John 17, He told His disciples, or He prayed about His disciples and said to His Father, Sanctify them through the truth. Your Word is truth. The whole point that's being made here is that the thing that's going to unify us is the truth of God. Most people think that truth does not unify that somehow truth has to be compromised or we have to collaborate to overlook certain differences. But true unity that God is looking for is a unity that's based in the truth of His Word. And it's driven home over and over and over again. People are transformed by His Word and they're transformed into the same image, the image of Jesus. And the more we look like Jesus, the more unified we'll be. As we immerse ourselves in the Word of God, thinking through each passage, just as we're doing this morning, Spirit of God is working to create that unity among us and through us with the Father and the Son. No wonder the Lord continues in prayer, continues His prayer, and the glory which You gave Me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them, and You and Me, that they may be made perfect, complete. The process is being taken.
taken over by the Spirit of God, that they may be complete in one. In other words, that they may go forth out of this oneness of life to live the kind of life that may go and reflect the person of Jesus and bring glory to Jesus. And then he adds that the world may know again that you have sent me and that you have loved them as you have loved me. How do they know that we're loved by God? Romans 5 says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given us. The Holy Spirit is constantly working with us and assuring us of God's love. Pointing us to things, and you see all these things God has done for you. Read Ephesians 1 sometimes. The riches of His grace. And you cannot help but be moved by the fact that God loves us. God loves us. In the final portion, he says, not only that we may be one, but that we may be with Him in heaven. And then he says that we may behold His glory. And then he goes on to observe that not all have known Him, but these have known Him. And then he makes a commitment to declare His name and the name of His Father and to continue to declare it to them. That the name, that the love with which you've loved me, he says, may be in them and I in them. Unity was still in the forefront of his mind all the way through it. He was talking about heaven and about our future destiny and our future home. But in the back of his mind was unity. And I think about a story told about the American Civil War. The rival armies were, the north and the south, were camped on the opposite banks of the Potomac River. And one of the bands, they both had bands, and one of the bands struck up a, a, a big patriotic tune for the north. And the Confederate musicians quickly struck up a melody dear to a southerner's heart, maybe Dixie. Then one of the bands starts to play Home Sweet Home. And the musical competition ceased. And the musicians from the other army joined in and played Home Sweet Home. Soon voices from both sides of the river could be heard singing, There's no place like home. There was much that divided the North and the South. Division was inevitable. But there would be unity one day again in this country. And they knew there would be unity, and they looked forward to the day when they would go home. And something like that with our Lord Jesus Christ. We may not always end up in the unity that we hope to have. But if we can look ahead and realize that the person that we may be angry with or the person that we're out of straits with, one day we're going to spend eternity together in God's home. Home, sweet home. How sweet it will be. Our gracious God and Father, take your word and the truth of your word, drive it home to our lives. Help us to become the people that you want us to be. Unified in oneness a oneness that you have produced, a oneness that is rooted in the truth of your word, a oneness that reflects the mind and the heart, the character and the life of your Son, Jesus. In whose name we pray. In closing, we invite you...